Praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to see each of you here. It's good to be back uh, from the few weeks, two weeks that uh, was not, we were not here with you. Uh, it's good to be back uh, with you and to open up to you the Word of God. It's good to see each of you here. What I'd like to ask you to do once again is to take your Bibles, and we're going to be back in Galatians, the fifth chapter, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we're, we are actually uh, going to be uh, really, within the next few weeks, slowing down the pace that we have been working through this epistle. I hope that's not too much of a, a burden for you to think about. And the reason why I say that is because one of the things that I always try to keep in front of me is uh, the, uh, the propriety of moving through the text at a proper pace uh, to where I'm not moving too quick, to where we miss uh, the essentials of the Word of God, nor moving too slow uh, to where you might have the sense that we should be past this by now. But the reason why in these coming weeks we are going to be slowing our pace down somewhat is because we are in a very important passage of Scripture where we have given to us in this next section both the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And those two lists, the, the vice list that we know as the works of the flesh and what we might call the virtue list of what we know as the fruit of the Spirit, are sections of Scripture that in and of themselves can be lifted from uh, the book of Galatians and studied on their own. Now, many have done this uh, by way of sermons and by way of actual books. You can, you, can have, you can read books specifically on the fruit of the Spirit. And so what I want to do in these coming weeks is uh, really begin to try to approach this at a, at a pace that I think will be beneficial to your soul. Now, the last time we were together, we, uh, we dealt with those works of the flesh uh, that the Apostle Paul lists as uh, uh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness, taken from the King James. And we handled those four, that, those four sins under the one category of sexual sins. This week, we're going to be moving on to another category uh, that Paul lists here in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And these sins are often referred to as religious sins. You might remember that uh, some of the ways that uh, commentators have classified the works of the flesh in this passage of Scripture is that there are sexual sins, there are religious sins, there are, uh, there are social sins, and then there are personal sins, drunkenness and reveling and such. And even though, they, even though these categories are used, uh, most commentators are quick to note that Paul probably did not have, by way of intention, a specific emphasis on the categories as much as he did on the fact that the works of the flesh manifest themselves in all manner of ways. Almost, we might say, uh, something of a, a scattershot way. But when we look at the list there in verses 19 through 20, there is a general categorization that can be noted. And so we looked at those first four sins, serious sins, no doubt. Sins that all of us, uh, if we are going to be honest before God, and we must be, sins that we all struggle with. The age in which we live today is an age in which has given itself over to this excess in the area of sexual sin. I was listening to a sermon uh, yesterday, and one man was saying, he was a younger preacher, uh, you know, 
kind of, you might say, up on how the younger world thinks. And he said that, um, I think it was Generation Z, is it there, or is it, is it Generation X? Now, I really don't even know these categories, but one of the younger generations uh, said that uh, a poll was taken, and more young people think it is a greater evil to, uh, to pollute than it, than it is to watch or, or to watch pornography. That in this generation, that's how twisted uh, our view of uh, morality has become. And so we, we live in a, in, a, in a present culture where a sex, sexual sin is, what can I say it? Sexual sin is almost idolized. And that brings us to the next category of sins, religious sins. And what we're going to do today is focus just on the one particular sin, the sin of idolatry. Now, this was something of a challenging decision to make as to whether or not just to handle idolatry in one uh, sermon and then try to handle uh, sorcery or witchcraft in one sermon. You can imagine that, uh, at least on the surface, idolatry would be much more expansive and much more resources, we might say, to, uh, to, uh, to, to preach on that. Sorcery will be something of a challenge, maybe, but we're going to take a look at that next week. It is interesting that when, the, uh, when Samuel approaches King Saul after Saul's uh, disobedience, do you remember what he says to Saul? He says that disobedience, how does he say it? Is is the sin of witchcraft and rebellion, is the sin of idolatry. Witchcraft and idolatry brought together in that passage of Scripture. So next week we'll take a look at that. But this week what we want to do is we want to consider, again, that particular work of the flesh, which is known as idolatry. So please, let's take our Bibles once again, turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we will read together verses 19 through 21. Notice again the Word of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, you've set before us this passage of Scripture and this particular work of the flesh, that of idolatry. We know, Heavenly Father, not only by way of the teaching of Scripture, we know by way of the work of your Spirit within our hearts and souls that the greatest, that the greatest action against idolatry which must be taken is that action and that warfare which must be taken against the idols that hide within our hearts and souls. And so we would ask and pray, Father, for great assistance by way of the work of your Spirit. Use the light of your Word, Father, we pray, and give us, we ask, Lord God, that determination to, to seek out and to discern and then to even war against the idols that we have placed within our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, we have serious work to do here today. We must deal with this whole matter of idolatry. And what I want to do then is I want to, again, set before you by way of a proposition what I hope to do or what I hope to convey to you, and it's this. The sin of idolatry is just as prevalent today 
as it was in the Old Testament, and maybe even more so, and maybe even more so in the world and in the church, and sadly within our own hearts. The sin of idolatry is just as prevalent today as it was in the Old Testament. And what I want to do uh, from this passage of Scripture, we're, we're going to really engage in something of a study, more so than, a, than an exposition or a sermon. And what I want to do here today uh, for you is I want to set forth this matter of idolatry first by defining it. Uh, it's not, idolatry is not very difficult to define. Uh, in one sense, we had something of a definition given to us in the opening reading uh, this morning that Rick gave, uh, that passage in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 25, where we exchange the truth of God for a lie. When we ascribe to that which is created, that which only be belongs to God. And so again, idolatry, we're going to see, is really that placement in the heart of anything above God himself. We'll get into that, and we'll again uh, make an attempt to give a definition to define idolatry. The next thing I hope to do with you here today is to give you tools to discover idolatry, to discover the hidden idols of the heart. And what we'll do there is we're going to see that the scripture uh, sets before us uh, ways in which uh, the, the idols of the heart can be discovered. Let me say just very quickly that the primary way in which idolatry or idols of the heart are discovered is through the ministry of the Spirit of God, making use of the Word of God, applying it to our conscience in such a way that we begin to understand or to see that that which is replaced or that which, or that which usurps the place that only God alone should have in my heart, that is a discovery of what our personal idol might be. <clears throat> this is how we have to approach this, you see. It's not idolatry, you know, something dusty in the past there. You know, we open up our Bible dictionaries and Bible encyclopedias. We go online and we see these little images and we think, well, they, they fell down and they worshiped that. What was that all about? Listen, let me say this very quickly. That little idol that we look at and kind of scratch our heads like what was so significant about that? The people of the ancient world, they realized that wasn't their God. That just represented their God to them. All that thing did was give their God a visible and local representation. And they were ascribing again to something created, which only belonged to God himself. We'll develop all these things. Idolatry defined, idolatry discovered. <clears throat> and then the last thing that we're going to see is how idolatry within our hearts can be destroyed, defined, discovered, and destroyed. Each one of us must be something of a Gideon. And what I mean by that is that you remember Gideon there in the Old Testament in Judges chapter 6. He tore down the altar of Baal. This man Gideon, again, took a bold stand against the idolatry of the day, the idolatry that was challenging uh, the place that God had in the hearts of the people of Israel. And one of the things that we're going to see, it's sad in a certain sense, but one of the things that we're going to see about Gideon is that even though Gideon was this great Terror, uh, uh, this great uh, 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 opponent to idolatry, Gideon, Gideon himself fell into a form of idolatry toward the end of his life. We'll, we'll take that up as well. So again, idolatry defined, idolatry discovered, and by God's grace, idolatry destroyed. Well, what I want to do here then is just to remind you that idolatry is a work of the flesh. 
And as it is a work of the flesh, it is something that each and every one of us must continually deal with. It is something that springs up and bubbles within the very bubbles up within the very nature of man. What was it? Who was it? Karl Marx that said, "Man is incurably religious." I believe it was that quote is attributed to him. Man, by very nature, is a religious being. Man, by very nature, is always again seeking uh, that which he ascribes ultimate value to. And so this idea uh, then of idolatry as a work of the flesh. Do you remember what the works of the flesh are? How we tried to define uh, the works of the flesh? We said that the works of the flesh are, are those attitudes and actions, uh, those beliefs and behaviors that spring from the sinful heart of man. They are those things which find natural expression in my nature and in your nature. The works of the flesh are those things, again, that manifest uh, uh, everything by way of our fallenness. And so this is what we see, the, uh, what, the, what, the, what the, the definition of the works of the flesh are. I also want you to be re reminded that uh, this idea of the works of the flesh are given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, you'll remember this from a few weeks ago, our Lord Jesus Christ in giving his own, remember his own vice list, our Lord Jesus Christ said this, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. And so again, where do the works of the flesh originate from? They don't originate from our environment. Our environment may add something to it. The works of the flesh spring from our own sinful hearts. And so again, each and every one of us are prone to these sins that uh, that uh, Paul has mentioned there in Galatians uh, chapter uh, chapter 5. Well, as I said before, idolatry is uh, the worship of anything other than God. And again, as I mentioned uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator or rather than the creator uh, who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry is, the, is what we might say is that great exchange. You remember how, how God lamented uh, there in, uh, in, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2, I believe, uh, that my people have exchanged, uh, uh, again, the, uh, they have exchanged uh, the gods. They, 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 they've taken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is this exchange. It's the exchange of something created for God himself. And I have to say this, even as Christians, we are tempted to that. We are tempted again to, to put something that, uh, that, that, that only God has the rightful place of, to put something else in its place. And when we come to discerning uh, what uh, the idols of our heart might be, we're going to have to understand that much, so much of understanding what idolatry is has to do with, prioritize, with, with, with uh, priority or prioritizing. And so there may be things that are idolatrous that may be good in and of themselves, but they become idols to us. And how is it that they become idols? They become idols because they have usurped that place that only God himself can have. And so our loved ones can be idols. Our families can be idols. Our work can be idols. Our ministry can be idols. And so again, we have to be very, very careful about that. And so... Hey, buddy, how are you doing this morning? All right, okay. Why don't you go with somebody again, okay? All right. And so we have, to be, we have to be very, very careful when it comes to this matter of idolatry. Now, again, uh, that's what idolatry is. What is an idol? 
An idol then is anything, person or idea, that is exalted above God in my life. Again, idolatry is the exchange or the worshiping of anything other than God. And an idol is that thing, that idea or that person, which again, takes that place that only God himself deserves. Let me give you a passage of scripture that we're actually going to be looking at tonight to consider this. And that's, again, the very well-known passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verse 5. When the Apostle Paul says that we are to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And anything that exalts itself or anything that we allow to be exalted above God is an idol. You understand? And in this passage of Scripture, I, I really can't help but seeing, again, something of a reference to what, uh, what Gideon did there in the Old Testament when he cast down the altar of Baal. Well, you see, as I said before, every one of us must have something of a Gideon within us. And so an idol is any person, anything or idea that is exalted above God. Now, idolatry can take many forms. And this is going to be important that we kind of, uh, that we kind of work this out. Because there is what I would call a very clear and overt idolatry, which is that idolatry that we look at and sometimes scratch our heads over. How can somebody fall into any, any kind of sin like that of worshiping some kind of uh, created thing? Uh, me taking the work of my own hands and making something and then bowing down in front of it. Again, that very overt and crass type of idolatry. It can be that. But idolatry can take a very subtle form as well. But in its overt, in its overt uh, category, one of the things that idolatry, uh, one of the ways that idolatry comes to us is through religious worship. So much of religious worship, even in the Christian world, is idolatrous. So much of worship in the Christian world is more akin to idolatry than it is to true spiritual worship that Jesus Christ calls us to. We have to say these things. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, the first and second commandments. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Whatever those gods may be, whether they be the vanities of the nations or whether they be the lust of our own hearts, no other gods before the true and living God. Thou shalt, make, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them. These are religious practices that are forbidden in the word of God. Thou shalt not bow thyself down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, and showing mercies unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. You see how God, ins you see how God both warns and incentivizes against idolatry. God brings his own character into this, into this great emphasis that he makes in the second commandment. I am a jealous God, he says. God is jealous over you with a love. And he would not have you, he will not have your heart taken away by anything or anyone else. You see, God is a jealous God. Do you remember what I what was it maybe three or four weeks ago when I, I made reference to that to that fact of how the Spirit of God loves you? Do you remember that? 
The Holy Spirit loves you. And that emphasis on the Holy Spirit loving you is taken from the, the epistle of James, where, <clears throat> where James says, do you think the scripture says, saith in vain that the spirit that dwells, in, dwells within us lusts to envy? And the very picture there is this. The spirit of God has a jealousy for you, a jealous love for you. The spirit of God is, again, jealous for your love for Jesus Christ. And it's a reflection of the very, again, the very, the spirit of God is God. And so it's reflective of what we see here in this passage of scripture. God brings his very character into this matter. And the reason why he warns us against idolatry is because he will have nothing usurp the place of our <clears throat> exclusive and ultimate love for him. And so again, he warns us. You know, it's very interesting when we look at, uh, at religion uh, as an element of human nature. Religion as something that every man is prone to. Religion, again, that just springs up and crops up wherever you find humanity. In a, in a very real sense, man, quote unquote, needs in his religion something tangible. And every idolatrous system is more than happy to give him that. Every system that focuses on these, these ideas of, of, the, of, of, of the tangibility of how God is to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped by bowing down here. He's to be worshipped by observing this or observing that. You see, again, this idea of idolatry is something that we must be very much aware of. But idolatry is not only religious. It's not only that which is kind of located in the Old Testament. What do we do with passages of Scripture like Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6? Mortify therefore your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Are, 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 we, are we mistaken when we say to, to our own day and our own society that is built so much on the desire for things? Are we not an idolatrous society? Are we not prone to that ourselves? And so again, this whole matter of idolatry taking its various forms. Anything, again, that usurps that exclusive love for the Lord Jesus Christ Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That exclusive love for Jesus Christ. One of the ways in which we can discern our idols, discover our idols, is to set it in front of us and ask, ask of ourselves that question that our Lord Jesus Christ asked of Peter. Lovest thou me more than these or this? It's a way we can discover these hidden idols. We can make our family an idol. I think of this passage of scripture so many times, having sons, and it's put in the context of sons. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 29. Wherefore, uh, uh, again, God is, is, is saying to, to, to Eli and Eli's failure, Eli not correcting his sons when they were when they went when they just made a disaster out of what the priesthood was supposed to be. First Samuel 2, 29, God says, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offerings, which I have not commanded in my habitation? Now listen to this, and honorest thy sons above me. To make yourself fat with all the chiefest of the offerings of Israel, my people. 
You honor your sons more than me. You see, God sees what has primary place in our hearts. It can be a thing, it can be a religion, it can be a relationship. It can be, it can be a career, it can be a desire, you see, these things. Well, while idolatry can take many forms, I would suggest that we use the two basic categories that I've already mentioned. There is overt, there is overt idolatry and there is hidden idolatry. Overt idolatry is kind of summed up for us in Exodus 32, uh, verse 4, where you had Aaron uh, making an idol for the people of Israel. And we see this in Exodus 32, verse 4. And he received them of their hand, Aaron, from the people of Israel, the gold, and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Rank idolatry, open idolatry, overt idolatry, you see. But then there's hidden idolatry as well that you and I are much more prone to. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. Son of man, this, that 14th chapter of Ezekiel is a, is, is a great expose of idolatry. Please read it today when you have a chance. Exodus, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 14. Son of man, God says to Ezekiel, these men have set up, are you ready? These men have set up idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of all by them? We're going to see later on in this 14th chapter of Ezekiel that God says to these idolaters who have these idols in their hearts, he says, again, when they come in, to me in prayer, and when I answer them in their prayer, I will answer them according to the idols of their heart. God will answer. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, an amazing, it's a disastrous thing to even think about that idols can be such a snare. And that's why I hate to say it, because we've probably all been there. We insist on something. We insist on our own way. We may be as wrong as the day is long as far as the, what the Bible teaches, but we're insistent on it. And could it be that the stubbornness of our own heart is leading us to these things? I've prayed about it. I've prayed. I'm convinced. God, 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 God made it real to me. God, listen, our conscience, as important as it is, in this whole realm of discovering what idols are, our conscience is not the final arbiter. The word of God is the final arbiter. The conscience is important. There's no two ways about it. And I would always, and I was, I would always say to you and to myself, don't violate our, let's not violate our conscience in matters. But the conscience does not have priority over the word of God in revealing what our idols are. Oh, you see this thing of idolatry. Again, overt or blatant idolatry is that religious worship and homage given to any created thing. This can be the worship of a false god or can be the worship of the true god in a false way. This is another element of idolatry, of this overt religious idolatry that we have to be careful of. You and I, we can worship God in a way that he is not ordained. And that is an idolatrous way of worship. We must be careful. So let me give you the passage here. 2 Kings uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And there are other passages, but 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. This is taken from the life of that very, very wicked, that most, that, that, that wicked king, Manasseh. You, we all know that Ahab was the most uh, evil king in all of Israel. Well, Manasseh was the most evil king in all of, in all of Judah. 
And listen to what we read here, 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hezebub. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which, is, which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars, now listen to this, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his, and, and he made his uh, son pass through the fire. He observed times and, and used enchantment and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards and wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image in the grove. Go with Winston, one of the... So if, if I can, so today we're dealing with very important matters here. So if we can make sure that the... Messiah keeps his, uh, yeah, so baby, sir. So reading on in verse, uh, verse 7. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of, the, of Israel, I will put my name forever. <clears throat> and it goes on to say, and, and they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them more to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed of the children of Israel. Well, what I'm trying to basically say is this. Here was Manasseh. And what did he do? Into the very house of the Lord, he brought these idols. And you must realize that there were times in the history of Israel when Israel thought they were worshiping the true God, but in a way that God had not ordained. Again, Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. And when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves up unto Aaron and said unto, unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. As for this Moses, the, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in your ears, of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received them of their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool. And after he made the molten calf, they said, These be thy gods. We've read that before. Now listen to this. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And they thought that they were worshiping God through this false image, through this false idol. Do you understand that we can attempt to worship God in ways that God has declared to be idolatrous. And so we must be careful, even in our religious worship of God. Worship is ordered by the word of God. We do not bring our imaginations and say, well, I think this is how God is to be worshiped. Worship is regulated by scripture, you see. And so when it comes to this overt worship, so much of quote-unquote Christianized religion takes on this form. In fact, in our mind, when we think of places that people would recognize as houses of worship, 
It is often full of images and statues, is it not? I forget what I was looking at, a magazine. It was a, it was a, it was a current uh, evangelical magazine. And when it had a picture of, a, of, of what worship was, it was, there was a statue there. Now again, I'm not suggesting that we go back to the days of iconoclasm, classism, uh, where we tear down idol, where we tear down uh, statues and, and rip down paintings. I'm not saying that. But this idea that statues and images can creep into worship and be acceptable to God goes against what we see in Scripture by way of what overt idolatry is. Now read it again, thou shalt, Exodus 20, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is under the water. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them or serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I'm very familiar with, the, uh, with a form of argumentation uh, that says this about uh, images and statues, that uh, statues and images, pictures, are the books of the illiterate. I was reading uh, yesterday uh, from an old, uh, uh, an old uh, theologian, I mean old, uh, from the seventh uh, century, uh, John of Damascus. Uh, interesting, he's probably the first Christian theologian that uh, had interaction with the Islamic world. And uh, he made uh, a, a great emphasis on uh, the use of imagery in worship. And again, that same idea that Images and pictures are the books for the illiterate. It's amazing how sometimes man can find himself to be wiser than God. Why did God not come up with this? Why did God not say there are illiterate people who can't read and so we'll give them pictures? You know what God has ordained for the illiterate? The preaching and the proclamation of the word of God. That's what God has ordained. God has ordained it through preaching the gospel would be made known. And these things are challenges to us, aren't they? We have loved ones, and we've been in places where we've seen these magnificent buildings and structures, and we look at them and we think, wow. And at the end of the day, what are they? They are things that man has used to try to draw our hearts closer to God, and this, you must understand, is a form of idolatry that we must reject. And so there is that overt idolatry. If you think overt idolatry is tough to deal with, wait till we start dealing with hidden and subtle idolatry because it's even more difficult. When it comes to this hidden or subtle idolatry, what I would say is this, that that subtle idolatry, that hidden idolatry, is the giving of place of honor to anything above God. This is, not, this, is, this is usually how idolatry is treated today. Most of our treatments of idolatry today really move beyond uh, anything by way of a prohibition of the second commandment. Uh, they move beyond, again, that, uh, that idea of uh, that there is some uh, other God that is worshipped other than the true and living God unless we get into some of the other major religions. And, and even there, we seem to treat that at an arm's length. Uh, but this idea, then, of hidden, uh, hidden idolatry is anything that is set up in the heart in the place of God. 
And as I said before, it can be it can be uh, it can be something uh, positive in and of itself, or family relations, or work or, or work responsibilities. Uh, it can be a number of things. But if these things usurp that place which, which exclusively be, belongs to God, these things then become an idol to us. Hidden or subtle idolatry is the giving the, is giving the place of honor to anything above God. This is usually how idolatry is treated today. And the reason for this is that in our quote-unquote advanced age, we think it's strange, if not absurd, if not absurd to worship anything, uh, to worship any type of, uh, of, a, of a thing, any, any piece of wood or any piece of metal or any, any statue that's formed. And so again, we think that uh, uh, that, that kind of overt idolatry is, uh, is just so, so strange that when we come to talk about it in our day, we talk about it in its more subtle forms. But I want us to be aware of both forms of idolatry, both the overt, overt form of idolatry and the subtle form of idolatry as well. At least two passages in the New Testament, uh, other than our passage in Galatians 5.19, uh, speak to the subtlety of our current uh, idolatry that we're tempted to. Again, we've already read the one, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, my desire for more things, is idolatry. Your desire for more things is idolatry. The desire to have something for the sake of having it is idolatry. In which one of us does this not come close to the heart to? In one sense, it's a, it's a feature of our age. In one sense, every form of advertisement that we that we look at today, or that we hear, that we that we observe, that we listen to, is is really is really going in this direction. You need more. And so again, we must be very very careful when it comes to this matter of idolatry. Idolatry is much more subtle than just those overt and crass forms of idolatry that we've been speaking about already. Of course, Ephesians 5, verse 5, again, essentially says the same thing. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is how serious idolatry still is. Idolatry didn't get moved to like a second-class sin that you don't have to worry about now. Idolatry is still that which excludes men and women from the kingdom of heaven. We must, must be careful. So again, something of a definition of idolatry, something of a categorizing of idolatry. But now what I want to do is I want to move on to how do we discover the idols of our own hearts? As I said before, it's easy to, this, it's easy to see uh, the idols in, in others. Uh, as I said, Gideon was able to tear down that altar to Baal. But he fell into a form of idolatry. Again, that we will, we will get to that, I promise. And so it's easy to see the sins of others. But what about our own sins? It's easy to see the, uh, the, the idols being established in somebody else's heart. But what about our own heart? And so what I want to do is I want to take a look then at how we can discover the idols of our own heart. And for this, I, I am indebted to uh, uh, an old writer, a uh, Puritan by the name of uh, David Clarkson. He speaks about uh, soul, soul idolatry, and in that he gives 13 different ways in which we can kind of uncover our hearts to see idolatry. We won't go through them all. You might be familiar with a fairly well-known phrase by the, um, 
by the uh, by the great reformer John Calvin, and he says concerning the human heart and idolatry that the the human heart is an idol factory, that we pump out idols the way a, a factory pumps out widgets, machines, whatever you want to say. And so the heart is pretty, you see, idolatry is a work of the flesh. That's why the heart is an idol factory. And so how do we discover these idols? First, maybe by way of an illustration, many of us uh, have seen the uh, the. the uh, the, the trilogy there, The Lord of the Rings. And you remember in that movie, uh, that kind of either despicable or that sad uh, creature, Gollum. You got it right. And he looks at the ring, and what does he say? My precious. What's my precious above God? That's my idol. So how do we discover these things? Well, the first thing I would say is this, is that the easiest and the most comprehensive way to discover our idols is to ask ourselves, is there anything that I love more than God? And I don't mean by way of, okay, I've, compartment, I've compartmentalized everything and this love for God on a particular day or on a particular way that I feel, God has that. But in my life, I'm being driven by something else. You see the subtlety? So obviously, if there's anything that we love more than God himself, that has become an idol to us. When Clarkson begins to work out his uh, 13 uh, indicators, if I can say it that way, the first thing that he mentions is that of esteem. And he says this, he says, that which we most highly esteem, we make our God. For estimation is the act of soul worship. And what he does in these 13 things, he kind of, he, 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 he uses these 13 things to express not so much idolatry in and of itself, but what the nature of soul worship is. The soul in worship, what is it doing? It is esteeming God above all things. And so if there is anything that we esteem greater than God, or if there is that which we've maybe not put those two, God and, uh, and, and anything else on that kind of scale to see which has the, the greater affection in our heart, what this idea of esteem may be doing is this. Oh yes, in my mind God has his place, but in my life, that which I esteem is taking up all my thoughts, all my energy, and all my effort. Our heart's just been exposed, you see. He says mindfulness is another. That which we are most mindful of, we make our God. What is it that keeps cropping up, bubbling up, finding itself in our thinking? Is it God himself? He's worthy of all of our thoughts, isn't he? And so what Clarkson is saying is that which we mind the most. He goes on to give a number of words. He speaks about intentionality, that which we intend to do the most. Is that subtle God? He says that which we resolve upon the most, which we resolve to do. When it's come, you know, I'm not a New Year's resolution guy, but when it comes to a New Year's resolution, have you ever heard anybody say, my, my, my New Year's resolution is to love God supremely. To love God with all my heart, mind, and soul. I don't know that I've ever heard that. I wish I would have said it to myself. 
That which we, again, that's what we, resol which we resolve to do. He says, that which we trust in the most. How many of us, and we understand it, we trust in our, we trust in our, we trust in our employment, don't we? We understand how difficult it is. There's a real need for, for money. We understand that. We need finances. We know that. But oh, how many times has, has again, that our trust in our paycheck undermined or exposed a failure in our heart's worship for God alone. That's that which we trust the most is that which we are worshiping. He says the same thing about fear and hope. If we fear, again, the, the, the esteem of man, or if we fear the criticism of man, and we set aside, again, that which, which God is worthy of, this is a form of exposing what our, what our secret idol is, that which we hope in, that, that which we desire to, to have more of, that which we delight in, that, that which we have a zeal for, that which we express the most gratitude for. You see, all these things are, are, can expose the, the subtle idol, idols that may be in our hearts. These matters, again, are very, very important. Now, let me say this. I don't want to, I'm not here to beat anyone up. I stand exposed by these passages of Scripture as, as, as much of any of, of you here today. And what I want you to realize is this, is that even, even the heart infected with idols can be cleansed. Do you remember the first scripture reading this morning? Ezekiel was 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle you with water and I will cleanse you from all your idols. And when we get to the destroying aspect of this, pass of this sermon, we're going to look at that passage of scripture. We're going to see in that section of the sermon that there are three things, again, that help us war against the idols. It's the new covenant. It's the new birth. And it's new affections. And we'll take a look at each of those, but I'm not there yet. I want you to see again that this, that this subtle idolatry might be called the great exchange. For it is not only exchanging the true God for a false God, it is the exchanging of the place in our hearts that which God alone should have with someone or something else. Here's that passage of scripture I was trying to uh, uh, quote from memory um, from Jeremiah chapter 2. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. God is, this is God's word to you right now, okay? Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. And with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, and send unto Kadar and consider diligently, and see if there be any such thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid, ye very desolate, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Everything we, have an ex everything we have an inordinate zeal for, everything that we have an inordinate desire for, everything that we put inordinate trust in are broken cisterns that can hold no water. Right now, can I put you into a situation 
You're at the end of your life. You're on your last day. What matters most to you right now? Is it all the accumulations of the past? Is, the, is it the accolades of days gone by? Is it the approval of friends who have come and gone? Or is it upon that great hope that the worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God? When it all comes down to it, every one of us will, will end up there. You see, our last day will be upon us. And so let us make sure that we are not trusting in these broken cisterns. Let's make sure we're not exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Let's make sure that we are not honoring uh, uh, friends and loved ones above God. Let's make sure that we, again, like are, are mindful of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me. Is not. Can you imagine our Lord Jesus Christ saying these things? Well, he has. And we know this. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. As I said before, stop and think of those words of our Lord Jesus to the Apostle Peter. Lovest thou me more than these? All these, can I say it this way? All these even suspected idols that we might have in our hearts. Let us ask ourselves the question, do I love Christ more than those things? And so that's the discovery of the subtle idols of our hearts. A definition of idolatry with categorization a discovery of idolatry within our hearts, and now the destruction of idolatry. As I said before, these idols are destroyed in three ways, and they're all bound up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Surprise, surprise, if I can say it that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great antidote to all of our idolatry. And what I would say to you is this, is that to define idolatry is important. To discover idols that challenge our supreme love for Christ is essential. But to set upon the work of destroying our idols is of the utmost importance. Why? Because, again, as the Apostle Paul says there in Ephesians 5, no idolater hath any inheritance of the kingdom of God and of Christ. You must understand that, 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 uh, that, uh, that God has given to us this power now to destroy idols, even though idolatry is a very tenacious sin. Let me give you those passages that I was talking about in regard to uh, Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, we read this. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired, they asked. They said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Gideon, again, the great idol destroyer. But later on in Gideon's life, toward the end of his life, we read in Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 27, the following. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. They were willing to set up his family as a dynasty to rule over them. Verse 27, And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Good for Gideon for saying these things. But notice this, and Gideon said unto them, unto them, I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had gotten golden earrings because they were Ishmael, Ishmaelites. 
And they answered, and they said, we will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast with therein, uh, uh, therein uh, every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that was requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold, about forty-three pounds, beside ornaments and collars and purple and raiment and there were, that were on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were about their necks. Now listen to this. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Orphrah. And all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to all his house. This great idol destroyer was still in some way, shape, or form ensnared by idolatry. And one man says this about this activity of Gideon. Here belongs to what is mentioned about Gideon. How from the golden earrings of the spoils he made an ephod and put it in his own city. Although Gideon did this honor and worshiped the true God, for he expressly says, Jehovah shall rule over you, yet all of Israel is said to have fornicated after it, that is, to have committed adultery, obviously because they wanted to worship the true God otherwise than what he had commanded in his word. This is a very serious issue, you see. And in the time of Reformation, this was insisted on that God was only to be worshipped by way of how he is revealed in his word and how, how we must be very, very careful when it comes to this whole thing of how we worship God. So there's Gideon. What an interesting individual. Tearing down the idols through good intention, creating a situation where the people fell into idolatry. But I do want to give you some encouragement here, some hope, if I can say it that way. Here I am noticing the fault of Gideon, the blemish, we might say. But when we look into the New Testament, where do we see Gideon mentioned? He's in Hebrews chapter 11, isn't he? He's one of the heroes of faith. Why am I saying this to you? You and I both may be plagued by these subtle idols that we must root out. But just because there may be subtle idolatry in the heart, that does not make us idolaters. Do you see the difference between the two? And I have to be careful in how I say that. Why? Because I know each and every one of us, each and every one of us, when we hear logic or reasoning like that, we think, well, this idol must not be that bad, and that idolatry must not be that bad, and this is just a small thing, and that's just a small thing. That kind of thinking is deadly. And I'm bringing this out to you again so that you don't despair as you begin from the light of the word of God to see what's in your own heart. Along these lines, another passage of scripture, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 through 32. What a picture of idolatry this is. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Oh, this is, uh, I'm sorry, this is not the passage that I'm, uh, that I'm thinking of. There's a passage there. It's in, it's, uh, it's in Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 8, where the Spirit of God takes Ezekiel back to Jerusalem, and he shows Ezekiel the sins of the land. And there is that memorable phrase from the King James that as Ezekiel is shown the sins of the priesthood there in Jerusalem, it's referred to the chambers of imagery. The chambers are in, as, as Ezekiel was given insight into that chamber, literally a room. What did he see? It was a room full of idols. And that's how the priest, that's how the priest of, of Israel, of, of Jerusalem were worshiping. It was a grave sin. 
And what I want you to see is this. There will come a time by way of God's great grace when the chambers of imagery are opened up. And when you see what's in your heart, I don't want you to despair. When you see what's in your heart, I want you, like, like, like we read in the, in the book of Ezekiel again, then, then you shall loathe yourselves for all of your sins. And I want to bring you back to that hopeful message of Ezekiel there, 36. Ezekiel 36, again, verses 25 and following. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols while I cleanse you. This work of destruction of idols begins with the new covenant that God has made with you and, with you and I in Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you understand? These idols must be broken. These idols must be renounced. These idols must be exposed. They must be understood. And they will be in and through the new covenant of God through Jesus Christ. And so there's the, there's, there's the, new, there, there's the new covenant, again, that provides this, this cleansing from idols. Some of you might be aware that this passage of scripture in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, is actually the basis of what our Lord Jesus Christ says in John chapter 3, verses 3 and following. You must be born again. Remember he says, you must be born of, you must be born of water and of spirit. Someone says, this baptism is this, this, and that. No, this is a reference to what we just seen there in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle you with clean water. And you will be, and you will be, and you will be cleansed from all of you, and, and you will be cleansed from your idols. And so again, our Lord Jesus Christ picks up the very theme of the new covenant and preaches the new birth by it. And so when it comes to this battle that we must do against the idols of our own heart, how do we do it? By finding ourselves in that new covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ. Are you in that covenant today? Are you trusting Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Have you been, as in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you been born again? It's the new covenant. It's the new birth. And can I say one more thing that, that God has given to us? And even before I get there, let me get back to this idea of the new birth. Do you understand that, that in the New Testament, the turning away from idols is the very mark of being saved? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, how did you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God? The leaving off of idolatry, whether overt or subtle, is the mark of conversion in the, in the New Testament. And so here, the new covenant, the new birth, and lastly, the new affections. You remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, when he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. You see these new affections that God gives, this love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22? If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, let him be accursed. You see, affection for Jesus Christ is in a very real way the mark of a new heart. Do you remember what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24? Uh, again, peace be to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Some of you might be familiar with that, with that very famous sermon that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, Thomas uh, Chalmers uh, preached maybe, what, two, two or three hundred years ago. I should know when he preached it, um, two or three hundred years ago. And it's a very interesting title. I've mentioned this sermon before. And he, he refers to the sermon under this title, The Expository Power of a New Affection. What a strange way of saying it, isn't it? The Expository Power of a New Affection. What's he talking about? Oh, you see, again... 
Oh. When love has gripped our hearts, all these secondary things lose their appeal, don't they? Those of you, those of us who, who, who love our wives, love our husbands, love your husbands, I should say, <laughs> love your husbands, you know of the expository power of a new affection. All the former affections done away with. Something of a silly illustration, but it might serve. It might serve the point here. I remember growing up um, when I was working in the shop with my dad. At, at the time, growing up, you know the kind of cool bicycles had the extended forks on them. Of course, my dad having the welding shop, I was able to put the forks on there, extend them out. I don't know why I remember this. I painted that bike competition orange and I thought it was just the, the best thing in the world. But when I got my first car, what do you think I loved? You think I loved that bicycle or the, that car? The expository power of new affection. Love for Christ will break every one of your idols. Amen. May, may I, as your pastor, never cease to call you to love Christ more and more. And so a new, a new covenant, a new birth, and new affections. Under these new affections, we, we hear the words, the calling of the New Testament. We hear the Apostle Paul saying, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. We hear the words of the Apostle John saying, Little children, keep yourself from idols. So when it comes then to making application of this passage of Scripture, what do we do? What we understand, as I said before, to define is important in this matter, to discover is essential, but to destroy is vital. No idolater in heaven. No idolater in heaven. And so again, we, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and we look to the Spirit of God and we look to the light of the Word of God and we say that by the grace of God, we shall follow hard on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I leave you with that passage of Scripture that our Lord spoke to Peter, not in the context so much of idolatry, but in the context of how the subtlety of idolatry can work. If God has or will expose anything that you fear may be an idol, hold it as it were in your hand and ask. And hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, lovest thou me more than this? these our father and our god this is a task that is beyond us we are incapable for this whole matter grant we pray lord god through the ministry of your word and through the ongoing ministry of your spirit that we might more and more see and understand the danger of hidden and subtle idolatry help us not to be arrogant against those who would fall into open and overt idolatry but with broken and loving hearts, give us grace to present to them that true fountain of waters, those, that cistern that always holds the water of eternal life.
Grant to us this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. stand together now as we sing hymn number nine, Worthy of Worship, hymn number nine. Spirit, who was given to us 
these new affections. He is worthy of our highest glory and our highest and the highest honor that we can give. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask and we pray that you would make us true and sincere worshipers of you through your, through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray, Heavenly Father, that while our great desire is that you would sanctify our conscience, we ask, Lord God, that even a greater and even a deeper way that you would settle within our hearts the priority of your word over all things, Lord. As we come to think of how we should be worshipped, may we in our hearts be searching and saying, what does your word say, Father? How would you have us to worship you? What is it, Father, that you would desire to see by an offering of these hands? And we think to ourselves, Father, that you have given to us in your word that very thing. You have told us the sacrifice of praise is what you desire. You have told us, Lord God, the coming to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have told us, Lord God, that the conforming of our lives more and more to the image of your Son is what you desire. And so, Father, we ask and we pray that every act of worship that we engage in would be a reflection of these very things that we see revealed in your word. How we thank you, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> that your word is to us a more sure word of prophecy that we do well to take heed unto. And so, Father, give us grace in these things. Lord God, this, this, this sermon which presents to us idolatry in its various colors, as it were, uh, still so much more to be said about this whole matter. But Father, when all is said and done, we know that when it comes to idolatry, that each and every one of us must deal with, with our own hearts before you. And therefore, we ask and we pray, Heavenly Father, Tenderly, graciously, but powerfully and effectively deal with those hidden and remaining idols within our hearts. How patient you have been with us, Heavenly Father. How kind of you to continually draw us to yourself. How amazed we are to know, Father, that in spite of all of our inabilities and weaknesses, yet you still call us and draw us to yourself. Give us grace then, Father. Therefore, Heavenly Father, for everyone who is here today who has great needs before them, may no idol get between them and you as they seek for resolution of those difficulties. Are there your people here who have great longing for times of spiritual fellowship and comfort? May they find you as the great comfort and joy of their hearts. Are some of your people here today, Father, weighed down with matters of health and well-being? Father, may they not look to any broken cistern, but may they look to you through Jesus Christ. Are there any here, Lord God, under the, the great anxiety of, of financial obligations? Oh, Lord God, I ask and I pray that nothing would become, nothing would become, nothing would come between them and their absolute trust in your 
providing hand. Grant these things, we pray, Father. Give us grace, we ask, Lord, as we engage others in whom we might see either subtle or overt idolatry. Help us, we pray, Lord God, to be very loving and kind and tender and showing to them your great grace and glory. If I can say it this way, Heavenly Father, grant that we would be toward our own idols ruthless but as we try to minister to those who may be blinded by their idols. May we engage them in a very loving and compelling way, showing to them the greatness of the new covenant, the miracle of the new birth, and the wonder of new affections. Grant these things, Father, we pray. We do pray for our nation, Father. Here we are, a society built upon greed and covetousness. Here we are, a society that has made an idol out of sexual sin. Here we are, Father, in many ways, so spiritually dulled to the effects of all of this. Keep us as your people, we pray. Give us greater resolve for your ways. And may we hold forth the light of the gospel to this sin-darkened age. Age, Do this, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now uh, by way of the design of our service uh, to remember uh, that new covenant uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, gave to us and sealed with his own blood. Uh, I apologize somewhat. I didn't get an email out to you last night and to ask you to take extra time to prepare uh, for our time together at the Lord's table. So at this time, I'd like to ask you to just take a few moments and Let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. One of the things that I want to remind you of before we do that is that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, has promised to be with us in a very special way in this ordinance. We must remember that the ordinance, by way of its elements, do not in any way, shape, or form change to become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, many of us are familiar with uh, those traditions where when the elements are elevated, the congregation genuflects and bows down. The elements are bread and wine, but they do represent, by way of design, what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Mm -hmm. He gave us his body. He shed his blood. He has ordained that these elements symbolize that and remind us of that. And so let's take some moments to prepare them. Also, Paul writes, 
For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we <coughs> say these words often, but in Scripture we see that it was your purpose and the purpose of the Father that a body be given unto you. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared. And in this body, you lived a life that perfectly satisfied all the righteous demands of the law. And in this body, you bore our sins. We thank you and we praise you for this reminder of your purposeful love towards us. Grant, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we might love you supremely, that there would be no one or no thing that would come between you and our love for you. And as we partake of this element that you have ordained, may we not only look back on what you have done, may we be presently nourished spiritually, and may we look for and long for your returning glory. And we pray this all in thy holy name. Amen. Let us partake. After the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, 
this duty as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes again. This cup which we are about to receive represents the shed blood of our Lord and Savior. His blood shed for us in his name. This cup, which we are about to drink, we acknowledge the ultimate sacrifice that our Lord and Savior made for us. As believers, we are cleansed by, from all unrighteousness that exists in each one of us by the presence of our Lord and Savior in heaven. Let us drink. Now, if you will and are able, let us stand together as we sing the doxology, hymn number 621.
Kidding me? 